Awesome. Thank you uh, for that worship, Isaac and team. And uh, welcome to Cross Point. My name is Pastor Josh. It's great to see everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we will be starting in uh, verse 8 uh, this morning. I was planning on going through the rest of the, of the chapter, but we're, not, we're only going to cover a few verses this morning, verses 8 through 12. And before I kind of get started and before we kind of rock out this sermon, uh, a few things. Number one, uh, I just really want to thank everybody for the grill and chill this last week. It was a blast. We had a great, it was just a, it, it was proof that if you just get in the yard and turn on some fire and put some meat on there, you'll have, you're going to have a good time. Amen. And, and that's what we did. And I, I really thank everybody for coming out for a great turnout for that event. And I, I in particular, want to thank our grill masters, Matt Whitehall and Greg Hill. Great job, guys, pulling out the grill. Fire, fire, fire. You know, that was... And so that's why we went ahead and added the bonfire to the hayride uh, in a month. We just love fire. So uh, it's going to be a good time. And so uh, thank you for that. The other thing, too, is uh, for the hayride that's coming up, we're working on the logistics right now. But I know for anybody who wants a ride or needs a ride, we're going to make sure that there's an opportunity for you to pick up, to get a ride out to where we're going for the hayride in a month. And so I uh, just want to make sure that, you know, that's happening. Also, uh, for next two weeks, I'll probably stop making this announcement next week or the week after that. But just to remind you, if you come a little early... There's coffee and donuts downstairs in between services, in between the first and second service, and that's just been a really great time, and uh, thank Jan Whitehall for that. The Whitehall family's just killing it right now at Cross Point, just killing it, and um, so that's going on. I feel like I'm forgetting something else, but that's good. Let's pray and preach. All right, let me pray. God, thank you this morning uh, for your word, and we are... Uh, uh, in need of, of, of hearing from you, of, of being encouraged uh, by your word and by what your Holy Spirit is doing. I pray that nothing I do will get in the way of that, of your work, that uh, ultimately, while I'm grateful you use the messenger, I pray that it's the message that would reign supreme in our heart and that you would just drive that home to our lives. And uh, so God, just help us to have freedom and joy in Scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, as you're going there, that's what I, I just remember while I was praying. I was multitasking in the brain. Don't try that at home. Um, but uh, Foundations on Thursday has just been going great. And even if you haven't come, this is a great week to come because I'll be teaching and preaching about spiritual gifts and then talking about ministry teams that you can become a part of at Cross Point Church. Every member is a minister. Everybody is called by God uh, to do great work for him, and we want to provide you the platforms to do that. So come this Thursday night at 6.30. It is a blast, great energy, really fun, and uh, it's been really great. Now, let me uh, go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and let me read the passage this morning here in the second service, starting in verse 8. And what we're looking for is unity. We're going to be talking about unity Today, starting in verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, he says, finally, all of you, and he's speaking to all of the churches that he's written this letter to, not just one, many churches, whom he calls the exiles, right? Finally, all of you have unity of mind 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here is a powerful passage, verses 8 through 12, that I believe is where he is addressing in particular Christians and in particular churches. And what he's encouraging Christians to do in their churches in a world of adversity, in a world of difficulty and stress, because every time they walk outside of their gatherings or their homes as Christians, they fall under the possibility, the potential of persecution, of losing their jobs, of possibly even being arrested for their, for their faith. And now they're coming together and they're practicing community. And under those stressful, adverse circumstances, Peter is saying this, Practice unity. Be intentional about keeping unity in your community. Now, when we say community, what are we talking about? The one thing we're not talking about when we're talking about community is we're not talking about unquestioned uniformity to the community. That's where you can get in danger. In fact, the word unity has been abused by by saying to people, you need to unquestionably, that didn't work, Without question, you need to to be uniformly united to the community without questioning or anything like that. And that is far from the New Testament idea of unity. In fact, the New Testament idea of unity is this. Cooperation, this is how we would define unity. Unity is cooperation in the midst of diversity. Unity is cooperation in the midst of diversity. And we would even add it's cooperation in the midst of diversity and adversity, okay? Now, let's just stop right there, and let's just admit that unity, uh, there's a high premium on unity today in any community, amen? We are struggling as a culture and as a society in every form of relationship to sustain unity, And what Peter has to say is so powerful in terms of helping us to practice and to participate and to be a part of the solution of sustaining happy, willing cooperation in the midst of diversity. But let me me tell you my real heart today. My real heart today is this. My real heart is that God would be glorified. And you know what we have to ask ourselves every day? How can I glorify God? How can I show off who God is? And you know what? The ultimate way we manifest visibly the greatness and the attributes of God is unity. In fact, Jesus said this in in John chapter uh, uh, 13 and verses 34 and 35. He said this is the primary way that we can show the world who God is. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying one of the great ways 
that we show off the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God perfectly united, is when we manifest in this world unity, cooperation in the midst of diversity, cooperation in the midst of adversity. If we can sustain in our homes, in our churches, even in the marketplace, if we can sustain unity and practice unity, we will show off the goodness of God. Because God is united. And what was it Jesus said? Jesus said, God, I pray. Right there at the end of his life, his end of his earthly ministry, he said, Father, I pray, John 17, I pray that they will be united. My disciples will be united as you and I are united. That they will be one as we are one. And so the question for us, we want to show off God. Of course, uh, unity creates a happy environment. Whenever you have unity, you're, you're happy, things are good. And so the question is, what do I need? I mean, what is it that I, what kind of person do I need to become in order to fuel unity, practice unity, even in the midst of diversity, even in the midst of adversity? How can I practice community in my unity, in my marriage, in my church, in my, in whatever community God has put me in? What is this kind of person that I need to become to practice unity. And Peter gives it to us. He unpacks for us the ideal person that practices unity. If, you, if you're dating, if you're married, if you're in church, if, if you're living with somebody who's different than you, which is everybody, how can you become a person that practices unity in your relationships? And I would say that the first thing that Peter identifies here is he, he identifies that a person that practices unity needs to have a sound emotional life. The first thing you need is a sound emotional life. This passage is, is flowing with emotion. He says there in verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind. That comes from a, a word that means Harmony, harmonious. Often English will translate that Greek word unity of mind because to have harmony, you have to make up your mind that you're going to be united. You know, unity is often a quality decision that you have to make every day. I am committed in my mind to being harmonious. I'm committed in my mind to not practicing a lack of harmony. I'm committed to unity in my mind. But then he begins to talk about an emotional life that is really profound. He says that uh, practice unity of mind, the second word, sympathy. And what does that word mean? That means that you identify with the joys and the sorrows of people around you. You're a sympathetic person. That means that if I'm having the best day of my life, if things are going great for me, you're able to identify with that and be happy because I'm happy and vice versa. If I'm sympathetic, I can celebrate your joys, which is, by the way, not always the easiest thing in the world because if you're having a bad week and somebody's having a good week and they're like, I'm having a great week, that can be a little annoying when you're having a bad week, amen? You've got to be able to be sympathetic even when it's difficult in your own life. But the other thing sympathy is, is that if somebody's really down, if somebody's having a bad week, let's say they're having a bad week and you're having the best week of your life, are you still able to identify and weep with those who weep and, and really go, go into that, that place of sorrow with them, even when you've got plenty of excuses to not be sorrowful? 
A sympathetic person is so emotionally in tune that they're, they're able to identify with people around them. They're not waiting for other people to identify with their emotions. See, Peter's talking about somebody who is ready to lean into the emotions of other people and willing to put others first in their sympathy. That's difficult. I'll be honest with you, I'm not always that good at that, right? And so he's talking about sympathy. What's the other word he uses for this emotional life that's required for unity, he talks about brotherly love. Brotherly love. That's always a love between Christians in the New Testament when it talks about brotherly love, right? And brotherly love says, hey, you and I in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, you said, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. That means that you and I are a part of the same family. Peter keeps coming back to this theme, by the way, family. We are family in Jesus Christ. We've been adopted. You and I are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Even if you don't always like that, you and I are brothers in Jesus Christ, right? I had two big brothers, and I loved them. We were close. But there was days when I didn't want them to be my brother, right? But, but when you're brothers and sisters, the one thing you do is, is you attend to each other's need because you're family. You know, when my girls were growing up, uh, especially my, my older ones, you know, we used to, and we still do teach them, all act like they're gone. They're still, I still got little ones. But I'm always teaching them, listen, you guys got to remember, you got, you're, that's your sister. Like, like, stop hitting her with the Barbie doll, you know, like, like your family. We're always reminding, we're always reminding them, listen, you need to treat your sister like your very best friend. How would you treat your best friend right now? If your best friend were over here visiting, would you let your best friend have that Barbie or would you say, mine, right? But when you're family, you treat each other like best friends. You remember that you're family. I, I remember when I was growing up, my, my mom used to make me and my brothers, when we were fighting, we'd be fighting and we didn't like each other. And she'd be like, she'd make us sit down and say, you have to say three nice things about your brother right now. And I'd be like, there's nothing nice to say about him. Right? But then when you force yourself and you look at the positive in another person, even when there's negative, and, and you're like, this is my brother, and I'm sitting at the table, and my mama just told me that I got to say three nice things, and you go, he looks like me. Uh, you know what I mean? But then you begin to release. As soon as you make a decision to be a brother, you begin to loosen up, and it always worked. You'd always walk away from that table, three positive things. You'd always walk away more united, brotherly love. See, this is a emotional relationships, brotherly love. Here's the other thing, a tender heart, my, my Bible says. You might have a, a better English translation that says compassionate. That's what it's really saying there, being compassionate. Comes from a, I love saying this Greek word, by the way. It's my favorite Greek word to say. I take any opportunity to say this Greek word that I can because the Greek word for compassion is splachna. Isn't that fun? It sounds like almost German, not Greek. Splachna. And you always spit, and it's really great. That's why nobody sits up here on the front row. (laughs) But compassion in the Bible, what it means is not only that you can identify with other people's suffering, but you are willing to suffer with people who are suffering. You're willing to carry suffering, to take part of the suffering on your own back. You're willing to go there. You're willing to feel things that are really hard to feel. You don't avoid people's suffering. You engage in it. You're compassionate. 
Obviously, the source of compassion for us Christians is the Christ because what he did was he became a human being to identify with human beings, to be tempted in all ways and yet without sin. And when he died for our sins, he felt that separation. He, he, he entered into our burden of separation on the cross, dying for us as our substitute and defeating death. And now he asks us, as we believe in him and his compassion, he asks us to have the same kind of compassion with one another. That is an emotional level that is like, wow. That emotional ability to identify with people's suffering is necessary for Unity. Here's the final thing, but certainly not least. He says that a humble mind. What is humility? Humility is the ability to put others before yourself, and it's the ability to not be filled up with pride and to feel like you're better than others or know more than others or be superior to others. A humble mind. And I got to tell you, that is so important for us to remember in a church because churches can become environments of a lot of religious pride. Did you know that? I'm at church. I'm worshiping God. Half my neighborhood isn't. More than half of my neighborhood. But I'm at church. I'm religious. Let me tell you something, man. What we believe at Cross Point is that what makes us right with God is not coming to church or giving to the church or doing religious things. What makes us right with God is that God came into our dark world and forgave us of our sins. And we come together and we say, you know what? I'm nothing. He's everything. John the Baptist, Jesus said about John the Baptist that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever was born of woman. And you know what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. I am not the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And I want to bow down and serve and live simply and and serve others so that others can know God. I'm going to put myself lower than everybody else because he is above everybody else. See, that's humility. And that is what's required for unity. You want unity in your relationship? You want unity in your home? You want unity with God? You want unity in the church? You want unity? You've got to go low to go high. You've got to descend to greatness. You've got to say, I am choosing to be humble. This is a sound emotional life that's required to be united with the church, to be united in the relationships God has given to you. He goes on to say there in verse 9 that these humble-minded people do not repay evil for evil. Of course not. Why would you? If you're humble, of course you're not going to repay evil with evil. Well, you hit my hand. I'm going to hit your head. Well, that's not humble. Right? He says you, you don't revile. Revile means to speak abuse. You don't revile for reviling. On the contrary... A humble person, this emotionally sound person, blesses even when others don't, might not deserve to be blessed. This is what you're called to, that you may obtain a blessing. This is the, the, the trick here. What I think Peter's getting at is he's talking about the emotional life of a believer. And where are you at in your heart? Where are you at with your emotions? 
I was listening to a leadership podcast uh, several months ago. This guy was doing this, this uh, leadership talk on how to be a great leader, you know, and uh, you listen to these podcasts and you got to learn how to be a leader. And he was talking about, you know, uh, your full capacity to be a leader and, and everything like that. And one of the things he talked about is he talked about, and this phrase just intimidated the heck out of me. He said that you need to learn how to be an emotionally elite leader. Doesn't that sound intimidating? I mean, I heard emotionally elite and I like checked out because like the night before I'd watch a Pixar movie with my girls, I started crying at the end and I thought, I'm not emotionally elite. I mean, my daughters look at me at the end of these movies and like, daddy, are you crying? And I'm like, no, baby, I just got, I got a contact my contact's all jacked up, but you're wearing glasses right now. You know, like I thought, oh no. I'm like not emotionally elite. I'm not emotionally sound. I'm not ready to have this perfect sympathy and brotherly love and humble mind and tender hearted because I find in myself a beast sometimes, a beast filled with pride, a beast filled with selfishness, a beast filled with, I, I want you to identify with my emotions, but I'm not ready to identify with your emotions. How can I become emotionally elite? He, goes, he went on to describe in this podcast, an elite emotional leader has a non-anxious presence in stressful times. <sighs> really? An emotionally elite person has a non-violent heart. <sighs> I grew up with two brothers. I've been violent my whole life. Come on. An emotionally elite person is wounded, but stronger as a result of being wounded. Is broken, but is not defeated. And you ask, how in the world can I grow in that? And the answer for us Christians is we come back to the Christ, don't we? And we come to Jesus, and we come to the foot of his cross. And what the cross and the death of Jesus in our place reminds us of is the death of Jesus reminds us that failure does not have to be final. It doesn't have to be devastating. But also that success is not, we are not to be overly impressed with success because we're forgiven people. And as we are united and abiding in the Christ as we're walking in our Christian faith in this gospel, as we're looking at life through the death of Jesus in our place, he promises us that as we confess and remember and celebrate him, he promises to form us and to help us emotionally. I like it in Isaiah 53 where it says that that Jesus was oppressed. Everybody say oppressed. He was oppressed for us. He bore our iniquities. He took our shame on the cross. And to be identified with the Christ and to surrender to him, something spiritually begins to happen to me because I grow in my confidence with God and my resources from God, but I grow in my humility with people and I'm able to emotionally be a little bit more balanced. I might not ever be considered an emotionally elite leader, but I can grow towards being emotionally elite as I come to Jesus because what Peter is describing is people who understand Jesus as the ultimate sympathetic one, as the ultimate compassionate one, as the ultimate brother who loved us by dying for us. 
We come to Christ and we give him our emotions and we ask him, Jesus, help me. Help me to have unity of mind, to be harmonious. Help me to be more sympathetic. Help me to have brotherly love. Help me to have a tender heart and a humble mind. And I believe he says that all who come to meet him and, and ask of him of these things, I believe that, that he will grant them and help us to grow in them. But that really is the secret to a united relationship, to a united home, to a united church, to a united society is, 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 is that right there, that emotional life founded in Christ. But secondly, not only emotions, Peter goes on to describe this person who is capable of fueling unity in the church. And not only is this person's emotional life sound, but also they have a positive attitude about life. In fact, he says in verse 10, look at it closely. Uh, And and as Isaac said and and quoted a little bit of the psalm, he quotes Psalm 34. and, And he says, for whoever desires to love life and see good day days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, now, so who's the person that seeks peace? Who's the person that doesn't speak evil who pursues peace? Well, it's clearly the person who desires, circle desires. I'm giving you permission to defile your Bible today by circling words. It's the person who desires to love life and see good days. Not only a person who loves life, but a person who desires. Everybody just say it, desires. Now you think, well, duh. Like, dude, you went to seminary and you're telling me the obvious. Tell me something new. But here's the thing. In my own life, there are times, there are days, there are weeks, there are months. There's been a whole year where I haven't desired good days. I haven't desired to love life. There's been times when I've desired to be negative. There's been times when I've desired bad outcomes. There's been times when I've been like, you know, the Debbie Downer character. You know, y'all remember Debbie Downer? Like everybody's having fun and like she's the one that's like, oh, well, this is a bummer. I'm sorry. I'm getting tired. I need more coffee. (laughs) But here's the thing. It can be very addictive. A negative attitude can become an idol. It can be something we go to as a security blanket in our life. And ultimately, we live in a culture filled with cynics. And what is a cynic? A cynic is somebody who sees through everything. It's the realist, you know, the realist in the room. Well, I'll tell you how this is going to turn out. I'll tell you how you're going to turn out, and I'll tell you how I'm going to turn out. We're all going to die a slow death. You know, like that's the cynic. I started thinking about the 12, the 12 disciples. I, I think about the 12 disciples, and I'll be honest with you. Almost every one of those disciples I think I could have hung out with. I could have hung out with Matthew, the tax collector, because he was always throwing great parties. Can I get an amen? Everybody loves the guy that throws the big party at the nice house. I could, have, I could have hung out with John very easily. I could have hung out with him because he's Mr. Love and Encouragement and forgot to love the world. You know, I mean, John's just love, love, love. And so he's easy to hang out with. 
And, of course, Peter's great to hang out. Blue-collar guy, you know what I'm saying? You hang out with him. He's always he's just extroverted, doing all the talking for everybody. He's funny and fun. You just got to remind him every now and then not to cuss as much as he does. You know, like, hey, watch the language a little bit. I could have hung out with all those guys. There's one. I could have even hung out with Judas because I wouldn't have known that he was going to betray anybody because I can't imagine anybody who would betray Jesus. But Judas is an accountant, and it's always good to keep an accountant kind of close. Amen. But the one guy I don't think I would have liked hanging out with is Thomas. And Thomas was the Debbie Downer of the 12 disciples. Thomas was the doubter, not the believer. And every time they start talking about walking on water, you can almost hear Thomas go, I doubt it. Where every time Jesus started talking about faith that can move mountains, I bet you Thomas was the one who said, I doubt it. And when Jesus rose on the third day and showed up in that room, alive and well, having been crucified on the cross, he showed up in the room. There he is, in the flesh. And Thomas looked directly at the physical risen Christ. And you know what he said? I doubt it. Even with Jesus in the room, Jesus like, Thomas, come here. Stick your hand in my side. You remember that? Thomas did not desire good life. He did not desire to love life or see good days. In fact, he doubted that there could be good days. Thomas was a cynic. He was a cynic. And you know what? I want to tell you something. Let us commit right now to not being cynics anymore. And I was reading, there's a guy I really, this theologian I really admire. His name is J.I. Packer. How many of you guys have heard of J.I. Packer? Really important guy, really important theologian. He wrote one of the most classic Christian books, Knowing God. He wrote it back in the 80s. I didn't even know he was still alive. This guy is still alive. He is amazing. And he wrote this uh, blog article, this post in Christianity Today. And it's so powerful because it's come from this guy who's just so profound. And he's a theologian. And we pastors read his books and such. But he writes this blog post. And vulnerably, he admits to his problem of being a cynic. And I want to read you part of this article because it just works so well with what we're talking about with a positive attitude for the sake of unity. But here's what he says. And listen carefully. It's really powerful. He says here in this blog post, he says, when Jesus Christ... Laid hold of me, I was already well on my way to becoming a cynic. But by God's grace, I was tamed thoroughly. And here's how he describes a cynic. Now, watch this. This is a cynic. He says, Cynics are people who have grown skeptical about the goodness of life. They look down on claims to sincerity, morality, and value. They dismiss such claims as hallow and criticize programs for making improvements. Feeling disillusioned, discouraged, and hurt by their experience of life, their pained pride forbids them to think that others might be wiser and doing better than they themselves have done. On the contrary, they, the cynics, see themselves as brave realists, and everyone else is self-deceived. He goes on to say, mixed up teens slip easily into cynicism, and that was what I was doing. And he talks about his childhood, and listen to this. He says, uh, I was reared in a stable home and did well at school, but being an introvert, I was always shy and awkward in company. Also, I was barred from sports and team games by the reason of a hole in my head, literally just over my brain, 
that I had acquired in a road accident at the age of seven. And for years, I had to cover the hole where there was no bone by wearing an aluminum plate secured to my head by elastic, and I could never get my body to learn to swim or dance. Being an isolated oddity in these ways was painful to me as it would be to any teen, so I developed a self-protective sarcasm. And isn't, isn't sarcasm a defense of the weak? Self-protective sarcasm settled for low expectations from life and grew bitter. Pride led me to stand up for Christian truth in school debates, but with no interest in God or a willingness to submit to him. And then he goes on to talk about what the solution was in his life. How can we not be cynics and desire to love life? He quotes several uh, passages from Ecclesiastes. In particular, he quotes Ecclesiastes 2.24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He quotes Ecclesiastes 8.15, which says, I commend joy. He quotes Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. And then he says this, and this is the kind of the takeaway. He says, being too proud to enjoy the enjoyable is a very ugly shortcoming and one that calls for immediate correction. Let it be acknowledged, as I had to learn long ago, discovering how under God ordinary things can bring joy is the cure for cynicism. I quote that long passage to say this. When, when Peter says, desires to love life, do you desire to love life? Do you desire to see good days? Are you a believer or a doubter? And how can you start becoming a believer and not a doubter? How can you start being a believer and not a cynic? How can you lift the attitude which lifts the altitude of your unity in your home without becoming a cynic? Here's the trick. The trick is the ability to see the positive, even small, ordinary things. To see the positive in people around you, not the negative. To see the positive in your environments, not the negative. To, to train your brain to see the very best possible. What was it that God said in Philippians 4? Think on the things that are worthy of praise. Desire to love life. And what happens is, is when you begin to desire to love life, when you begin to desire good days, you then have a natural set of resources to practice unity. You're the one that's going to help bring harmony. You're the one that's going to help not speak evil, but speak good even when evil's around. You're the one that's going to believe great things. You're going to become attractive. You're going to be the one that people begin to gravitate towards because you won't be a Thomas. You'll be a believer. Positive attitude is critical for unity. And if we're cynics... If we begin to mirror cynicism of our world and our culture, and let me be the first to admit, there's a lot to be cynical about out there, isn't there? There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain, just like what he went through in his life. Being a kid, going to high school with a helmet. We go out in this world spiritually and emotionally. We've been abused. We've been hurt. We've been betrayed. Sometimes we've been hurt by the church. Sometimes we've been hurt by a father or a mother or a family. 
And then we, we listen to these politicians. We watch 24-hour news all the time. We, we stay updated on culture and we look at it and we go, this is madness. Who can you trust anymore? Who can you believe anymore? And we grow cynical. And we start going, I doubt it. We've been married once, and now we're trying to do a divorce recovery in our life, and we I doubt it. There's a possibility for a good relationship. We go through pain and shame and hurt and whatever else, and it's easy to be cynical, but here's the reason why we don't have to choose cynicism. Even though none of us are perfect, and we're going to let each other down from time to time, God will never let us down. And the truth is, is that God came into this world. God has spoken good things over us. He's taking us to a good place called eternal life, new heavens, new earth. He's calling us to be exiles who live in this place where our citizenship is not on earth. It's in heaven where he is taking us. There is plenty of reasons as believers in the resurrected Christ to stay positive, to not be cynical, and to be believers and not doubters. It's just, where's your trust? And I believe if you can start putting your trust in God and having a relationship with him, I believe deeply that your attitude life will begin to lift And so will your relationships. So will your whole approach to life. Peter says, here's here's the person that's going to help unity. Emotionally sound person, man. God, help me grow in emotional sound person. A, a, A positive attitude. God, help me lift my attitude. Help me do that, God. Help me to love and desire to love life. To desire to see the possibilities and the hope that God has given to me. And here's the final thing. I would say that this person has a believing prayer life. A believing prayer life. Peter, one more verse here for you. Verse 12, as he continues to quote Psalm 34. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Oh, yeah. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When he says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, he almost seems to be stating the obvious. God's eyes are on all people. God sees all things. There's nothing that's outside of his sight. So it has to be an idiom that the psalmist was talking about when he says that the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, he's saying that God is looking after believers, that God is watching over the righteous, watching over his people and the outcomes in their life, and he's doing it in a caring, loving way. It's a, it's a phrase of warmth and comfort from this great God. This great God is good and he's watching after us. He's gone ahead of us. He's gone down that road. He's prepared his plan for us. It's a good plan he has for us. He's prepared his will and he is watching us in the good times, in the bad times, in the times when evil has been done to us, in the times when good has been done to us, in the time when we have plenty of food on the plate, in the times when we don't know where the food's going to be next. Still, yet, even in Christ, God is working all things out for the good of those who love him, who have been called to his purposes and here's my question for you here's my question when you pray and when you talk to God do you doubt that do you doubt that God cares for you when you pray is it a ritual is it or is it words that you're saying to a God that you believe 
cares for you. And how can you know that God cares for you? How can you know that he's looking after you? It says the righteous. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. How can I be righteous in God's sight and and know that he is watching over me? The way that we know is by our faith and our union in Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who is the completeness in our life, who's fulfilled as a human man all the demands of God and says, To us, no matter where you're at, no matter how much you've failed, no matter how much you've slipped, no matter, even if your emotional life is not good, even if your attitude is not good, still, you can still pray believing that God is watching after you. He cares for you. But if we continue to rebel against him, if we're not believers, if we continue to rebel against what he's doing, he's asking us, to look to him, to look after us. And, you know, these believers were being treated unjustly, and I think that they were insecure because they wondered, will evil be judged? Will our persecution as Christians in this culture be judged? Will, will, will the martyrs who have died, will those who have been arrested, will, 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 will something happen to evil? I don't feel like God is going to do anything about evil. I believe that built into them insecurity. I believe Peter is saying to them, listen, God is watching after you, even in the midst of persecution. God is on your side. God is for you, not against you in Christ Jesus. And you know what? That helps unity. It really does. Because when you know that God's going to bring justice, when you know that God is watching after and he's going he's to balance the weights at the end, when you know he's working all things out, even the bad stuff that happens, that means you don't have to fix everything. You don't have to bring justice to every moment. You don't have to retaliate or take revenge on those who might have mistreated you. No, you don't have to. You can give it to God. He's watching after me. I can let go and I can focus on my sympathy for others. I can focus on my compassion for others. I can focus on my unity in my church and in my home and in my marriage I can focus on the good things that God has given me to do and I can give him the bad and the evil things and he'll take care of that and it'll all work out do you have a praying life a prayer life that's a believing prayer life Mm. that's what we need to trust in we ask ourselves man How do I grow in these areas, this emotional life, this attitude life, this prayer life? And the real, the real trick is not to do it on our own, but it's to continue to look to Jesus. Jesus says, look to me. And as we look to Jesus, what did Jesus do? When he went to go die for us on the cross, he went to Gethsemane. Remember that prayer? And in that prayer was this emotional life, this sympathy with sinners, this, this desire uh, to do God's will, to submit himself, to consider others more important than himself. Not my will, but your will be done, God. Not my will, but your will be done. He sweated great drops of blood in his compassion for what he was about to go through in separation from God so we could be reconciled to God. He, 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 he bore our, our whole sorrow and all of our pain. And he believed great things. He desired to see good things out of our life. The Bible says that it was for the joy of the cross that he went to the cross to die for us. And when he was dying on that cross, do you remember what he said? Even in the worst moment of, 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 of spiritual wrath in his body, in my place on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was quoting Psalm 22. And many scholars believe, many scholars believe that, that when he began that psalm, he might have quoted the whole psalm. But Matthew only quoted that first verse. But certainly the whole psalm was on his heart and on his mind. All Hebrew Jewish people would have known it well. And if you continue to read that psalm, which starts in verse 1 saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to say, the psalmist does, in verses 23 and following. He says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And those words of hope of the outcome of the cross. Hope of resurrection was in Jesus' heart and mind when he was dying in our place. And you know what? He says, I'm sorry I'm popping. I don't know why I'm popping. But you got to keep listening. i got to finish. He says, you know what? When you come to me, I will help you believe. I've gone before you. I will lead you through that sense of forsakenness, all the way to trust, to knowing that your hearts will live forever. Jesus is the secret to growing in our emotional life, our attitude life, and our prayer life. We look to him and ask him to help us. And therefore, we are able to practice unity. Amen.